Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Did you know that over 95% of all businesses fail within the first 10 years? By listening in to what Bob's guests have to say, plus direction from Bob Pritchard himself, it's our intention that you won't be among those statistics. Now, here's your host, Bob Pritchard. Hello, world. Welcome to the 333rd episode of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show, coming to you through Voice America Business Channel. And we're broadcasting in its eighth year across the world. And today we're broadcasting from the magnificent Gold Coast in Queensland, Australia. The Commonwealth Games is about to start in a couple of weeks. And that's a bit like the Olympic Games, except there's only 70 countries competing instead of whatever number. But it's a it's a big deal. Streets are blocked off, police everywhere, security everywhere. But... Um, it's going to be a great event. But I'm here with a, a client finalising an, an, an ICO, an initial coin offering. I'm really excited about this opportunity and I'll tell you more about it in forthcoming weeks. Now, a bit of perturbing news. A new study shown that the majority of workers are ignorant about automation. You know, and putting your head in the sand or ignoring the signs that are all around us is something that you're going to do at your own peril. So if you're um, in a regular job and you are not keeping up with automation and AI and robots and the things that are happening, you should um, get across it so that you understand what's going to happen in your industry. 77% of American workers say they've heard the term automation but only 30% say that they know what it means and probably only about 10% actually know what it means. And the more that job seekers know about this growing trend, the more likely they are to seek more secured jobs. 60% of job seekers believe that fears around robots taking away jobs are overhyped. <laughs> I wouldn't count on it. But nearly two in three job seekers believe workers in most industries will be replaced by computers or robots. So people are sort of clinging to the false hope that robots and AI and automation is not going to take their jobs. But the reality is, it is. So the more job seekers know, the more it worries them. And of those looking for a job who've heard of automation, 70% say that they're actively seeking jobs that are less likely to be automated. Automation is just changing the way we work. It's changing the way companies run. And um, artificial intelligence technologies are affecting the careers of workers in almost every industry. Now, change doesn't mean that there won't be jobs. However, they're probably likely to be totally different jobs. And forecasts of the impact vary widely, with some analysts predicting huge decreases in jobs. I've heard numbers up to 70% of existing jobs today will disappear. Other analysts suggesting that maybe that number's more like 20%. Either way, it is one hell of a lot of jobs that are going to go by the wayside. What is clear, according to ZipRecruiter report, as well as the related studies at size, is that the skills needed to get a job are changing and will continue to change. Technological job displacement 
it, it, it's already begun. It's all around us. And it's essential that the workforce is prepared to adapt. In the report, they found that the cost was the top reason for not being able to acquire STEM skills or soft skills. You know, it, it's not inexpensive to continue to train yourself, but the reality is it's pretty expensive if you don't have a job. And um, they're the two skill sets that are um, considered the safest from automation, which is STEM and also soft skills. Now, change has already come and a hell of a lot more is coming. And I understand that cost is a problem, particularly if you've already got a whole heap of um, college debt. And um, the second most cited reason for people not learning STEM or soft skills is that workers don't believe they need them. That, uh, you know, this whole thing's being blown out of proportion and everything's going to be all right. Well, that isn't the case. And uh, although that, you know, it might be easier to, con to convince people that they need to uh, learn STEM or soft skills, now, to stay employed or to get a job in the first place, workers are going to have to adapt as the market needs change. For many, that's going to need more mean more training, being open to doing different kinds of work and adapting before change comes in order to not be dumped by it when it does come. So we need to look at what we do and look at how we can avoid, how we can retrain ourselves and what skills we can learn so that we don't get swept aside with by automation and uh, AI and robots. Now, do you get my daily 30-second read business newsletter? It goes out every single day to about 1.7, 1.8 million subscribers. It takes just 30 seconds to read. Sometimes it might take you a minute, but it's only short. I try to keep it to about 350 words. And every day we tackle a different subject from advances in medicine to new apps to new technology to subjects like Hyperloop, autonomous cars, blockchain, all the things that you really need to know if you want to be able to survive in five years in this planet. It's absolutely free. It's information's invaluable. And we do not, under any circumstances, use that database to... Um, sell it to anybody so that anybody can solicit with it. It's Once we've got it, it is confidential to us. And if you don't get the newsletter and like to give it a shot, go to bobpritchard.com and just enroll. It takes you two seconds. And if you don't, if you read it a few days and you um, don't want to get it anymore, it's simple to unsubscribe. You just go to the bottom, unsubscribe, done, you're off the list. But I'd Nobody ever unsubscribes, and every day we get hundreds of people that subscribe. Now, people are always asking me how they can get big freelance and consulting fees. You know, being a freelancer, I've been a freelancer for a long, long time, and being a freelancer is a great way to earn much better than wages. You know, if you're working for somebody, it doesn't matter what sort of a job you've got, um, there's only a certain amount you can earn. But if you're a freelancer, you can earn pretty much whatever you can command. And the secret, though, is that if you want to be high, paid high fees for your services, 
you need to be known for something that people are willing to spend money on. Not being known means you're not going to make any money as a consultant. It's just not going to happen. Gary Halbert, um, you've probably heard of him. He's one of the best copywriters who ever lived and he hosts $7,000 a head seminars, said, I'm not in the copywriting business. I'm in the self-aggrandizement business, i.e., he promotes himself. The difference between the copywriter who gets 100000 and one who gets 1000 isn't that the guy who gets 100000 is a 100 times better copywriter. He's just a hell of a lot better at marketing himself and positioning himself. So you need to market yourself in a way that enhances your status in the eyes of your perfect prospect. If you're not comfortable with shining the spotlight on yourself, you put yourself at a huge disadvantage. For example, um, I've got to where I am. I mean, the, the radio show, this radio show and the newsletter that goes out every day is all about building my positioning. People read the newsletter every day. Every day it's about something interesting. Every day it's technical. And people say, gee whiz, this guy must know something. This guy's half smart. So it's all about promoting yourself. So when somebody calls me and they say, oh, we've listened to you on the radio, we've um, read your columns, how much do you charge? I can put an extra couple of noughts on because it's about promoting yourself. So how do you market yourself? First of all, self-proclamation. Get proactive and create your own positioning. Secondly, self-aggrandizement. Don't be shy about beating your own drum. Tell everybody how wonderful you are. You know, when people ask me, how good are I? I'm bloody really good. That's why people pay me. And this is these are why these clients pay me. So you need to beat your own drum. You need to specialise. The fewer people you compete with, the fewer people you're compared with, and it's much, much easier to become a celebrity in a narrow niche than it is in a broad one. And the fourth one is be visible somewhere that's useful. You know, some people you'll get money off. There's a whole bunch of people that are never going to give you money no matter who the hell you are. So don't waste your time. You'll never give you money. Focus on people who are likely to pay whatever fees you ask. And fifth, be an expert and be presented as an expert in front of the right audience or even a famous client helps. If you've got a really famous client and you're known as the person that's got this famous client, you will do well. Um, you want to make sure that, but if you if you come up with some sort of a stunt, you know, Harry Houdini, Houdini had a stunt where he would get himself locked up in a um, police station and, and locked up in a cell with handcuffs and all sorts of things. And then he would always get out of it because he knew how the locks worked. He'd studied the locks. He'd been to the lock people. He knew he could get out of there no matter what. So, but if you do a stunt to promote yourself, you want to be 99% sure that the results are going to work because you don't want to look like a dumbass. Like Tony Robbins made his name with his fire walk. Now, there's a lot of tricks to that fire walk. Um, and he wouldn't be doing it if it was a 50-50 deal. It's not. It's always going to work, 100 times out of 100. And exploiting status 
is much more important than having talent. A seven-figure income has less to do with your talent and your ability or your expertise than it does with your ability and willingness to position yourself and exploit your status. And exploiting status is also much more important than having a degree. You know, professionals who have degrees, who make no money, love to beat up on professionals without degrees who are making a shed load of money. And status is even more important than your deliverables. Work on your status as hard as you work on your deliverables. For example, the highest paid speakers are not the best speakers, but they're the best at exploiting their status. And just a couple of other things, you know, it's um, how to promote, approach a consulting client. Always make sure that the potential client comes to you. Don't go to them. Make yourself important. Make sure that what they see at your work environment is a lot of work stuff spread around everywhere, showing that you're working on all these projects. And piles of books convey that you have some depth to you. No interruption should occur when you're consulting with clients. When you're talking to a client, make sure that you don't don't take all these phone calls, don't answer the door and don't do any of that. So just remember that it's easier to get money from people who know you don't need money than to get money from people who know that you do need money. Okay, a couple of weeks ago we were discussing options for students to obtain and pay off student loans. Student loans is a massive problem. Um, Student loans in the United States, twice as much money is owed on student loans that is owed on all credit card debt. Now, that ought to scare the crap out of the whole society. It's, it's atrocious. And something like 14% of all students default on their student debt. So there are a number of um, options being weighed at the moment. Corporations are coming in and helping to provide uh, debt. And, of course, as um, jobs become more difficult, as people get laid off, you know, people who have student debt lose their income, therefore they can't pay their student debt, therefore they default, therefore they're in trouble. Michael Van Erdwick has redefined private student lending for over 500 banks, credit unions and alternative lenders and investment. And uh, Michael, CEO of Reliamax, he's a good guy really knows his stuff and I'll be back with Michael after this short break on the Bob Pritchard radio show coming to you from the wonderful surface paradise in Queensland Australia the site of the upcoming Commonwealth Games Do you want your business to achieve results you never thought possible? Bob Pritchard is recognized as the business leader's advisor and has 30 years of experience as a straight-talking troubleshooter for Fortune 500 companies and SMEs across the world. Whether you need a checkup across all departments of your business or simply want to improve marketing, advertising, performance measurement, or some other area, Bob Pritchard will work his magic so you can blow away your competition. Bob Pritchard is also one of the most in-demand speakers in the world. 
Over 1,500 clients on five continents and countless standing ovations are a testament to how he changes the fortunes of business. Pick up Bob's new book, Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets, at your nearest bookstore or visit Bob's website at www.bobpritchard.com. Remember, if you want to be successful, call Bob Pritchard now. Worldwide phone numbers and more information can be found at bobpritchard.com. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking Radio Show, where we give you an insight into the lives of some of the world's most interesting business people. We talk about the services they provide, and we try to find out what it is that makes them tick. Very few businesses are successful. In fact, 95% or so fail. So the 5% that succeed have got something that they can really teach us. Now, one of the biggest challenges we face, I think, as a society is ensuring that our young people get a top-notch education and can afford to go to the college or institution of their choice without going broke doing it. Um, It's a pretty scary Situation And a major part of that consideration is how do you pay for that education? Now, Reliamax has redefined private student lending for over 500 banks, credit unions and alternative lenders and investors. Reliamax provides a complete turnkey private student loan marketplace platform solution, which includes borrower acquisition, origination, servicing, liquidity support and insurance. Now, Reliamax enables lenders to offer financial solutions that help student borrowers realise their education goals. And for some reason that we'll find out in just a minute, Reliamax surety bonds are not available in California. Today's interview is with Michael Van Erdwick, who is the chairman and CEO of Reliamax. And uh, Michael provides a strategic vision to Reliamax, and he's had more than 25 years of experience leading insurance and final, fin- <laughs> blah, 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 financial organisations as a third-party administrator of workers' compensation benefits and the startup of a self-insured workers' compensation fund in Minnesota. He was also the chairman, CEO, and founder of Bioverse, which a biotechnology company. Now, as many of you are probably aware, Americans owe over $1.48 trillion in student loan debt, and that's spread out over about 44 million borrowers. Now, what's scary about that is that's about $620 billion more than the total U.S. credit card debt. Now, I find that just an extraordinary number because we've all got multiple credit cards, all of us who live in the US, got stacks of credit cards, we've all got balances on them. And uh, so students owe $620 billion more than the total credit card debt. Wow. And the delinquency rate is around 12%. Now, when you bring that down to numbers, that means about 5 million ex-college students are delinquent, 5 million. So it's a major issue. 
Hi, Mike. Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. You're being heard right around the world. Now, Hello, Bob. Mike Van Erdwick. Happy to be here. Good. Um, you're up there freezing to death in North Dakota, right? Oh. We're based in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Oh, South Dakota. I was close. I was close. But the warmer of the warmer of the Dakotas. Yeah, and what do you see when you look out the window? Snow. <laughs> that is correct. <laughs> now, there's some major changes afoot with student loans. With, for example, some corporations are now funding students with what's called, I think, a an income sharing agreement, where the corporation advances the funding for college in exchange for a percentage of future earnings. So, and that provide some advantages for students, but there's obviously major moves afoot uh, to make college loans more affordable. Of course, the government could play a big role in that, but they don't. Um, And uh, so apart from income sharing agreements, how has student lending changed over recent years and how do you see it changing moving forward considering it's got to be more, got to be a better deal for students, surely? Yeah, that's that's a great question, Bob. So I think the first question to ask yourself whenever you hear the word student loans is are they talking about federal student loans or private student loans? Okay, and as you mentioned, uh, uh, there's 1.4 trillion of total outstanding student loans uh, in the United States. Uh, 93, 92, 93% of that is outstanding federal student loans and only about 8%, about 100 billion, is private student loans. So just wanted to okay. frame that as you always always need to ask yourself, are they talking federal or private? Okay, could you just explain to me the, the difference between the two? The federal loan is, is um, what given to you by the government, by the federal government. Um, yeah. And- yeah, that's correct. So the... The reason people take out federal student loans, if you look at the cost of education annually in the United States, is over $400 billion a year. So roughly a fourth, yeah, crazy, about a fourth of that, a little over $100 billion, is free money, grants and scholarships. Right. About About a fourth of that is federal student loans. And the other half of the pie, 200 billion, is called family contributions. Right. And a little tiny sliver of that is private student loans. But it's families paying for their education in ways they often shouldn't. They're um, taking out early from their retirement accounts and paying penalties and fees. They're putting it on credit cards or personal loans. They're home equity loans. Yep. That's what's happening. Yeah. I understand. I understand perfectly. My my son's now my son's now a Googler, and I get very frequent calls. Hey, Dad, can you help me with my student loan? Um, okay, so how will Reliamax um, impact that change, or continue to impact that change in in yeah. when student loans are delivered? Yes, I think what you're going to see, and you're seeing it already is great innovation coming in the private sector. You're seeing it with income share agreements that you just mentioned. You're seeing it with different types of student loan repayment assistance. Uh, Companies like Gratify 
um, work with employers to offer student loan repayment assistance as a benefit, just like health insurance or retirement accounts. We offer that to our employees and team members here at Reliamax. Um, but you will con continue to see even greater innovation about actually helping borrowers uh, repay their loans, whether it's rewards programs or other types of incentive programs, uh, doing business the way millennials and Gen Zs want to via mobile apps, cell phones. Uh, if you're a servicer of student loans and you don't have a mobile app, uh, I would say that, you know, you're not doing business the way that uh, your customers, the millennial and Gen Z bar. Right. So, um, yeah. I guess it, what, what's going to become more difficult, I, I guess, for um, today's generation is that uh, tenure of jobs isn't isn't reliable anymore. And I, would, I think something like 50% of the younger generation are now freelancers, which means your income can be irregular, which makes it very difficult, I guess, to pay back loans in a traditional way. And IA is replacing so many roles that, um, you know, there could be there could be in the future a whole bunch of um, college graduates who, you know, have difficulty getting a job. How do, how do we address that issue? Well, um, boy, there's several things in there. Uh, income share agreements are, are very new. They make up a minuscule amount sure. of um, the overall loans. And there's a lot of things that need to be tested and proven before we know that model will um, be rolled out in a bigger um, way and accepted, not just with the regulators, um, but with the actual borrowers themselves. Yep. Uh, when you're giving up substantial future income to, to pay off your student loan, uh, we'll, we'll see how that model plays out yet. It hasn't been out long enough to know. No, that's true. So, <laughs> what what inspired you to start Reliamax? Did you finish college with a, a massive debt and thought, hey, i got to do something about this? Or, um, you know, wake up at four o'clock one morning and say, aha, Reliamax, that's my new future direction. How did, how did it all come about? Yeah, um, well, I was fortunate. I came uh, from a family that uh, valued education. So my dad was a professor. My mom was a teacher. My two sisters were teachers, my brother's a doctor. And so we placed an emphasis um, on education. I was fortunate having graduated from college in 1983 uh, when the cost of college was about $1,000 a year. You could yeah. get a four-year bachelor's degree for four to $6,000. And I came out of, out of college with about $3,000 of debt. Well, imagine, imagine that. Yeah. Well, <laughs> looking at my son's debt, I, I, I can't imagine it. <laughs> so, you know, yeah. So how did you, how did Reliamax come about? Yeah. So I, um, was initially started with a couple other insurance companies, which I sold, but it was an opportunistic, um, acquisition on my part. So back in 2006, I acquired Hemar Insurance Corporation of America from Sally May. Right. So who's Hemar? If you, if you back up Hemar, which was also based in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, 
uh, started 20 years earlier, back in 1986. And they began insuring private student loans for third-party lenders, primarily banks. In 1994, Sally Mae acquired HEMAR, and it became a captive insurance company to Sally Mae, and they could only insure loans originated by Sally Mae. Right. Fast forward, yeah, fast forward to 2006 when I acquired them. Um, what did I get? 20 years worth of data on $12 billion worth of private student loans, all the technology, the hardware, the software, the data, the analytics, the underwriting and pricing, the default prevention, claims, recoveries, got the management team. So in 2006, now I'm in the private student loan insurance business. <laughs> and we, yeah, we, we didn't insure any new loans in seven and eight, um, going through the financial crisis and banking crisis. But since then, we've insured about another $4 billion in private student loans. And today, I like to say that um, we are much, much more than just a private student loan insurance company. Uh, I, I like to, the analogy I give is we are the private or, or the Uber of private student loans. Okay. I'm not quite sure what that means. <laughs> so, yeah. So in a similar way that Uber connects people that need rides with yep. people that can provide rides, right. we connect p- people that need money, oh, I see. students, yep. borrowers with people that can provide money, lenders. Yeah. And, and so unlike the other companies in the student loan space who are all lending off one balance sheet, um, we are fortunate to work with over 500 lenders. And just like Uber doesn't own any vehicles, Reliamax doesn't own any loans. We never compete with our lenders. Okay. Um, so that's that's how I started it, and that's kind of how it's evolved to where we are today. So would I be right in saying that somebody who's, say, comes from an underprivileged family or not as well-off family, um, has real trouble getting um, student loans? Um, well, how we underwrite um, these loans, it, it, about 75% of what we do is in-school loans. About 25% is consolidation refi loans. Right. Okay. So that's the, the next filter. Once you d- decide, is it a federal or private, we only deal with private student loans. And then you have to ask yourself, is it, in-school or refi. On in-school, our underwriting really starts at the school level. What school are they going to? And we look at at those schools and say, what schools are having the greatest success rate uh, when it comes to graduation rates, job placement rates? So we underwrite the school first, then we underwrite the programs within the schools Okay. And we say, well, is it, a, is it an undergrad? Um, uh, we underwrite a freshman different than a, a senior. Right. Um, is, it, is it a graduate program? Is it a doctor, a lawyer? Uh, th- those are all underwritten differently. And then ultimately, we do get down to the individual borrower. And uh, most of the time, uh, it will require a cosigner, typically a parent. Right. Okay. So, what um, what changes do you see 
in the near future to um, lessen the burden of student loans on on college grads. What, is there any major thought about how that's going to be changed? Or I guess people must be working on it, including people like yourself. Yes, I think two things you need to separate. One is the cost of education. Yep. And two is is how do you best pay for it once you know what that cost is. Yep. So on the, on the cost of education, it really focuses around financial literacy. Um, you know, should I select a... Um, in-state school or an out-of-state school, a public college versus a private college. So you need to really ask yourself, uh, what do you want to do once you graduate from college? And you have to give it some thought about, you know, the, the amount of debt that you should incur while in school should be really no more than your first year projected annual income once you graduate. Wow, is that possible? Is that? Uh, it is. It is. You know, despite what you read, Bob, out there in the, you know, well, there are borrowers that have federal student loans of over a million dollars of federal student loans. What? We on the private. Yes. What? Where the hell did they go to school? <laughs> well, here's oh, the thing, because, geez. you know, Reliamax, we, we just... Um, we run into this occasionally where on the private side, no lender in their right mind would allow a borrower to get themselves in that much trouble. We put the, put the borrower first. Right. On the federal student loan program, as a freshman in college, the maximum you can get is $5,500. Right. As a senior, that's $7,500. So you can't get into too much trouble being an, being an undergrad. Yeah. But once you go to graduate graduate school or the Parent Plus program, you can borrow unlimited. And there are professional students out there that go to school for 30 years and change their major eight times and end up with a million dollars. And I think there's several wow. borrowers in the U.S. that have over $3 million in outstanding federal student loans. <laughs> Somebody needs to that should, that that should be capped. <laughs> <laughs> I reckon, but um, not borrowing more than your first year's income would be difficult. I think my my son went to George Washington, um, and uh, he's now a Googler and doing quite well. But I doubt whether well, I might be touching go, but I doubt whether his first year income would be um, as much as his student loans probably. Um, that seems like a high hurdle, but, but then how long does it take to pay on average to pay them off? If you're, if your, um, uh, loans equal your first year's income and your first year's income with a good qualification and for a good company, let's say it's a hundred grand. Um, by the time you, you know, you get out of college, you've got nothing, you get a, get an apartment, you furnish it, you get something to get yourself around in and whatever. It's got to really, and then of course there's taxation. Um, you've got to, you know, must really be difficult. Yeah, well, the average college graduate has about twenty-eight to thirty thousand dollars of student loans when they um, okay. graduate from college. That's right. that's the average. So you, that's that is about um, three hundred dollars a month. Um, these are typically fifteen, twenty-year loans. 
but the even on a 20-year loan, the average pay down, I think, is about 13 years. Right. Okay. Um, so it's not a it's not as uh, high hurdle. The the again the the people that come out of college that have um, two hundred thousand dollars debt is a or even a hundred thousand is a very very small amount, and those are the ones that um, you typically see that make the headlines, and it's the person that you know is working at Starbucks for for minimum wage and living in their parents' basement. But, um, you know, that is the rare exception. That right. is not the, the, the standard by any means. So how does, how does Reliamax um, plan for change in the future? I mean, every business is being disrupted. I would imagine that yours is one of those that's being disrupted one way or another. Um, how, how do you um, continue to advance your programs and uh, sort of safeguard yourself against the disruption? Yes, if, if you think back uh, in 2009, there were about 100 uh, private student loan companies went out of business during the financial crisis. Yeah. And the reason they did, uh, it's not that the demand was not there because more kids are going to school and the cost sure. of education keeps increasing. It was, it was um, really that the securitization markets dried up. The financing um, disappeared and it never came back to the to the levels it was back in 2009 right uh so i think some of the the things that we look at is first of all we always put the borrower first right we always think of the student the borrower and then our model of working with lenders if we tried to to do this on our own balance sheet um, we would need a, a huge balance sheet sure but our model is working with hundreds of lenders and how do we grow from 500 lenders to, to 600 or 800 or a thousand lenders? We're signing up lenders every month um, coming onto our platform. Okay. So, so why should I deal with Reliamax rather than one of your competitors? What, what, what advantages do you give that um, somebody else doesn't give? Well, a couple of things that are unique about us. First of all, we are the only insurance company in the world to insure private student loans. There's nobody else doing that. And that's from a lender's point of view. Right. Okay. Um, some of the benefits that we offer a lender is, uh, you know, how do we, um, how do they attract more millennial and Gen Z's or how do they get diversify their concentration risk or in, invest into a profitable asset class that yields a five or 6% fully insured return. Those are the reasons a, a bank or a lender would want to do business with us. Yep. Um, on the, on the borrower side, it's, it's um, really, we're unique. We're half FinTech, half InsureTech. Yep. And from a borrower's perspective, it's really uh, being able to pay via mobile app. Not too many people have that. There's just a couple out there. Um, we will be soon to launch the first um, digital native mobile app where you can actually originate a private student loan on your cell phone. That doesn't exist today. Okay. It's, there's web enabled, but there's not a digital native app. Yeah, and, that, and that's going to be so critical. Thank, thank Moving forward, that's going to be critical. It's all going to be phone, isn't it? Yes, you have to to stay up on technology. You have to um, uh, do business the way the, the millennial and Gen Z want to do business. And it has to be a, 
an omnichannel experience where a borrower can start the application on their cell phone, finish it on their iPad, and their parents can co-sign it on their laptop. That's the experience that we need to deliver to the borrowers, make it easier for them um, to get educated and then actually move forward with, with getting a loan. Well, yeah, that makes perfect sense. Now, do um, private student loans offer advantages and opportunities that the federal loans don't add, don't offer? I mean, what's what's the advantage of one over the other to the borrower and to the lender? Yeah, from a, from a borrower's perspective, again, the maximum I can get of a federal student loan as a freshman is $5,500. Right. That typically does not cover the cost of tuition, room and board, books sure. and fees. Absolutely. And so you need you need to fill in and that's where the family contributions and, and private student loans really come into play. Um, but but they're competitive uh, even on interest rates. We we've got lenders that are offering interest rates lower than you can get a federal student loan at. So you shouldn't just think automatically hey, I have to get my federal student loans first and then get a private student loan, I think you should look at all your options first and then make a decision. Right. It would be in the it would be in the lender's interest, wouldn't it, to incentivate kids and, to get loans through them because once they leave college, they're going to borrow a hell of a lot more money for a lot more things like houses and cars and all of those things. Um you would think that it would be worthwhile for the lenders to um, get in the good books of the borrowers. Yes, it, it's the first major financial transaction um, that, 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 that this young person is going to have, um, and it's such a great investment in their in their education, uh, so they can go ahead and achieve their dreams in life. So, college is just really a means to an end. It's really what do you do with it once you graduate? Yeah, yeah, true. Uh, so. Who do you sell to? You know, do you sell to? Do you target to the parents or do you target to the sh- to the millennial? Or where do you target? I learned just as a precursor to that. I, I learned a lesson a few years ago when I was pitching um, a car company for um, for their business, and they said to me, "Who's the target audience?" And I said, "Well, the car's driven by mainly students and mainly." female students because it was safe and it got a lot of miles to the gallon and stuff. And um, so I'd be targeting female students. And the car company turned around to me and said, "Uh uh-uh, we're targeting the parents because it's the parents that are buying these cars. Targeting the student doesn't get you anywhere. So who do you target? Do you target the parent or do you target the the schools that they're coming from before they go to college? Or who? How does that targeting go, come about? Who do you sell to? Yeah, on, on that borrower acquisition channel, um, you have to target target everybody. So the, the first thing when we're talking to a lender, uh, we say, hey, let's make sure we target your existing members or customers uh, so that they don't leave your financial institution and get a private student loan um, through one of the big lenders or your com- competitor across the street. So uh, we work with our existing lenders and help them with best practices. But we also have a team of people that call that call on schools. So we're out there working with the schools. 
so you, you, you're using all the channels to reach all of the parties. It'd um, be difficult. It, it, so is your promotion mainly direct marketing? Is it um, digital marketing? Is it traditional marketing? What does what, what the breakup of your um, marketing mix look like? Yeah, you, you would use, again, everything. You would use digital and social channels. Uh, we partner with, with a lot of uh, party aggregators like um, Credible, LendingTree, uh, Student Loan Hero, others that are out there um, on the customer gen side. Uh, you know, how do we work with them? Right. Um, you know, and even things like direct, you're sending to uh, a parent and it's a postcard and it's sitting on the, or a brochure sitting on the, the kitchen uh, island cupboard, yeah. then guess what? The, the parents is going to look at it. They, they can see it. The borrower can see it. They can talk to their kids about it, something in common. So it's, uh, that's, what, that's yeah. what we do on the, on, yeah, that's what we do on the borrower acquisition side. Right. So, how will the private student loan industry most significantly benefit students and parents? I mean, are we going to have a, a much bigger private student loan industry in the future than we have now at the expense of the feds? Or Yes, I think you'll see tremendous innovation coming out of the private sector. That coupled with um, maybe decreased regulation, so change in policy, um, and a de-emphasis on federal student loans. Right. Uh, we shouldn't be leveraging up the Fed's balance sheet this much on, on federal <laughs> student loans. But the innovation, let's talk. Yes, they do. So I, I think who you're going to see uh, enter this space is, you know, the large investment banks. You see Goldman Sachs launched consumer lending platform called Marcus. Um, Citi came out a week or two ago and said that they were considering a Marcus-like consumer lending platform. Um, you'll see those entities, Morgan Stanley, JP Morgan Chase. I think the next bucket would really be these large insurance companies. Right. Um, how can they become more relevant to millennials and Gen Z? If you think about, for instance, large auto insurers, uh, if you believe that your revenue is going to decline because of um, self-driving vehicles so, and yep. ride sharing. How are you going to place that that revenue, and how are you going to build those relationships with those those young um, those young millennials and Gen Z? So and you, then yeah. ultimately, I one last thing. I think you'll see that I I think you're going to see Amazon, Google, Facebook, Apple, all these companies. Um, how they've got the data? How do they want to? Um, capture this data and work with the millennials in Gen Z as well. So I think you're going to see tremendous growth and expansion in, in the private student loan sector. Well, that's all a good thing. Um, Michael, we're out of time. So thank you very much for speaking with me on the Bob Pritchard radio show. Now you can reach Mike at Reliamax, which is R-E-L-I-A-M-A-X.com. Reliamax.com and I'll be back with more of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show and Voice America Business Network after this short break.
From the boardroom to you. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking, absolutely no bullshit business radio show on Voice America Business Network. And we're broadcasting from the beautiful Gold Coast in Queensland, Australia. I'm here in meetings with a client uh, with whom we're launching an ICO and also the Commonwealth Games are um, about to start so we're taking the opportunity of meeting with some people that are involved in that. So let let me start this segment by telling you about an amazing story of government idiocy. You know, the government is good at idiocy but uh, this is a classic and Microsoft greed run amok. IT Asset Partners, it's a Los Angeles company with locations in Vancouver, British Columbia and Hong Kong. Now, Eric Lundgren founded the company four years ago as the first US-based electronic hybrid recycling facility. So what he does is they um, wipe data and resell electronics, they harvest components for use in new devices and they shred devices to recover commodities. Well, ITAP, I-T-A-P, processes over 41 million pounds of e-waste a year with the goal of turning discarded cell phones and other electronics back into functional devices. Now, for years, Eric has fought to cut down on the millions of electronic devices that are discarded every day. He's obsessed with recycling electronics. So obsessed that he once built an electric vehicle out of recycled parts and recorded a longer travel time on a single charge than a Tesla. (laughs) This guy's pretty smart. He's a broader vision for the future of hybrid recycling and for global electronic asset management. Now, he had the idea to recreate and sell the Microsoft Restore Discs that empower consumers to refurbish their old... Uh, Dell computers so they could last longer and stay out of the trash. But Microsoft and the government didn't like that. The computing giant, Microsoft, argued that Lundgren's distribution of their repair tool, which they said was worth 300 bucks a disc, cost them $420,000 in lost sales. And then the government filed a 21-count indictment against him. And all he did was supply a tool that's available so the computers would last longer. So the 33-year-old faced criminal copyright infringement charges for dispersing 28,000 Microsoft Restore disks that would help older computers last longer. Now, you'd think that would be a great thing. But what did they do? They sentenced him to 15 months in prison and fined him $50,000 for participating in a conspiracy to traffic in counterfeit goods and commit criminal copyright infringement. Madness. Now, Lundgren maintains that he merely intended to do a good thing for the planet and people who owned old computers, but he happened to get in the way of planned obsolescence. 
or the act of people like Microsoft giving their products artificially short lifespans so they can sell you another one. His actions help consumers protect the environment, help them make their computers last longer, and resulted in zero revenue lost to Microsoft, Lundgren told Forbes. He believes that consumers should have the right to repair their property and he's been sentenced to prison because of this. Of course they've got a right to... They've paid Microsoft for the bloody thing in the first place. But if you want to keep it alive longer than Microsoft wants you to keep it alive, they'll take you to court. Now, the repair tools that he gave away can be downloaded for free at Dell by any owner of a Dell computer. But he provided these disks to refurbishers so the consumers could restore their computers back to factory settings. His purpose was to empower consumers to restore their Dell computers for reuse. Microsoft did not want him to share the free repair tool and because he provided a consumer a way to fix their computers using a free Dell Restore CD, Microsoft argued that this equated to a potential loss of a repeat sale to Microsoft. So you buy the stuff from Microsoft, it peters out, you get a restore disk that Microsoft produces, you can download it for free, but because he gave it away, they sentenced him to jail and fined him $50,000. Now, Microsoft was paid for the sale of Windows in the first place. And secondly, the ability of a user to use and reload the versions of Windows, which originally came on the computer, travels with the computer in perpetuity. Never are you required to repurchase Windows from Microsoft. It's almost beyond belief. It just shows you the power of governments and these major corporations. And, you know, they, they can throw everything at poor little guy. I'm sure Eric hasn't got a whole bunch of money. And so they just pile on charges and what's he going to do? Now, electronic waste is the fastest growing waste stream in the United States. It's dangerous and it leaches toxic chemicals into the environment and also into the water table. Lundgren didn't do this to make money. As incredulous as it might sound to the capitalistic characters at Microsoft, much of what he does in the recycling business, he does by breaking even and sometimes he even loses money. I don't get it. I really don't get it. He does it to help consumers and the environment simply because it is the right thing to do. Now, heaven help Microsoft or the government to do the right thing. Now, we all know that that's not something the government's really good at, or Microsoft for that matter. Now, to further illustrate, illustrate just how ridiculous this is, in the original indictment against Eric, the repair tool and software was valued at $300 each by the government. So their initial demand on Eric Lundgren was $8,400,000 in fines 
and they wanted 54 years in prison for giving out stuff that's already available free to people who bought and paid for their computers and just wanted to extend the life a little bit. Anyway, partly coming to their senses, they dropped the valuation of the $300 to $25, and it's still $25 more than it's worth, because the true value of this recovery software is zero, nada. And Lundgren is the first person in the history of the United States to be sentenced to prison over the distribution of a freely available recovery software that has no value. Has the world gone nuts? What's the matter with these people? Has greed overridden our logic? You know, you sit there and you look at Gates with his $110 billion or something and he's suing this poor little bastard who hasn't got a lot because he, he's giving away software that's already free. Crazy. But remember, if you're not living on the edge, you're taking up too much space. Get out of the way. Let somebody who wants to succeed go past you. If you're always trying to be normal, I'm not a great lover of normal people. If you are always trying to be normal, you'll never know how amazing you can be by not being normal. It's amazing what you can achieve if you don't do normal things. So I hope you can join me again next Tuesday when I will be broadcasting from Los Algondes in Mexico before heading back to Los Angeles. In the meanwhile, continue to be successful because the alternative to success really sucks. This is Bob Pritchard. You've been listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Please join us again next Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until then, enjoy another week of success in your business and your life.